Welcome to the Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast, conversations focused on how some of the world's top energy leaders are innovating to deliver clean, affordable, and reliable energy for the future. Your hosts are energy and climate expert, Dr. Andrew Parker, and midstream industry veteran, Adam Murray. Now, here are Andrew and Adam. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast. Our guest for this episode is Jim Kibler, who serves as the executive director of One Future. Jim is responsible for the day-to-day operations, expanding membership, uh, meeting with legislatures and industry regulators, promoting the organization at industry events, and he was one of the original founding directors. Jim's held a variety of roles at Southern Company Gas and its predecessor, AGL Resources, Um, and most recently served as president of Virginia Natural Gas. Jim was responsible for a safe and reliable delivery of natural gas to over 300,000 customers in Southeast Virginia. He served as vice president of external affairs and public policy for AGL Resources, and those roles helped lead to what is now uh, the One Future organization. Before AGL, in January 2005, Jim was an energy and telecommunications attorney in private legal practice. He counseled clients on requiring, permitting, and operating energy infrastructure, so has a very unique background there. Jim serves on multiple boards relative to industry uh, advancement and biofuels, the University of Virginia, and has been an executive committee member. And if his resume wasn't long enough, Mr. Kibler is the past chair of the American Gas Association's Legislative Committee and Task Force on Energy and Environment, as well as Southern States Energy's Board and Associates Member Program. He has quite the resume, so really appreciate you joining us, Jim. Thanks for coming on. Hey, I'm really happy to be here, and I appreciate you guys including us. We appreciate the time, Jim. And as we always start off every podcast with an icebreaker, uh, let's clear the air about baseball. We were having some good back and forth uh, before we started recording. And uh, I think the three of us are all or were fans of the sport to varying degrees, but it feels like it's it's lost its luster. And what improvements do you think could be made to baseball? The pitch clock was awesome this year. You could actually sit down and watch a game and it didn't take four and a half hours. But what other things do you feel like are missing that baseball has lost in the last five, 10, 15 years? Well, I don't, I I think the connection to the fan base, right? So uh, I spent eight years in Atlanta uh, working for uh, AGL Resources, which is now Southern Company Gas. And the new stadium for the Braves, right, is smaller, and they moved it to an area that's a, a little easier for folks to get in and out of. But it's 50 bucks to get a hamburger. Right. And the seat licenses are so incredibly expensive that the average fan doesn't have access to the game. I mean, it's for corporate entertainment. And, you know, hey, love the Braves. I mean, I, I wasted a lot of good daylight during college watching the, the Braves <laughs> on the Superstation instead of going to class. You know, I, I think like many things, it's become too corporate, right? It's kind of just lost some appeal to me. Yeah, we, we, we don't use the video, but Adam's wearing a Rockies hat and, and I live in Denver. So, you know, maybe the solution is just have a really bad baseball team because I, mean, I, can, I can get into Coors Field for about four bucks, I think, if I, I really had to. Um, yeah, just build a bunch of bars around it and your attendance will always be great. 
Yeah, I mean, the Rockies, the Rockies kind of have a unique situation of being terrible, but I think they were like 10th in the MLB this year for attendance because they've they've figured out that magic potion. But yeah, I agree. It's a yeah. Yeah, bas- baseball. Baseball is a totally different sport than it was when I was growing up. And mm-hmm. I like to I like to rib some of the traditionalists about the steroid era, because at least the steroid era was super exciting. <laughs> Hey, you know what? Uh, our daughter worked in Boston this summer. My wife and I went to visit, and it was our first time ever at Fenway. And that, by the way, I, I, I fell back in love with the game a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a tremendous experience, right? I don't think anything's changed about that ballpark in a long time. But it's, uh, you know, it's accessible. The tickets were not that expensive. There's, you know, it felt like a ballpark. You smelled the peanut the shells on the floor and you know it was it was good and plus seventh inning stretch everybody stands up and sings sweet caroline so i mean it's <laughs> fan it, base it, it right just it. like you asked it, for yeah it's it was a it was a really great time well let's dig into a little uh industry talk here um First off, we mentioned that you are the the founder and and leader of of One Future. Can you share the story behind One Future and kind of the formation and how it all came together in 2014. Happy to. Yeah, there, there were eight companies and we all had commercial relationships, right? We were natural gas producers, midstream uh, utilities. Then Energy Secretary Moniz called several of us to his office in Washington and um, talked about uh, President Obama's methane challenge program and um, asked us what we could do as leaders uh, to help coalesce the industry um, in a voluntary effort to reduce emissions. You know, uh, you guys have an industry background. You're familiar with safety culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the old uh, Shoehart dimming cycle of plan, do, check, act. It's so ingrained in environmental health and safety. What we, what we learned as we gathered was that um, we all had that common culture, uh, and not just safety, but what can we do to continuously improve? The environmental organizations had just begun to use fracking as a as a dirty term. Mm-hmm. And being a downstream person, more retail, so to speak, having the customer interface of a utility, uh, we quickly realized that uh, whether we produced the first molecule of gas or not, we, everyone considered us frackers, right? We're all part of the thing. This big monolithic industry which we all know is not monolithic. We know that uh, the best operators are agile. Um, They deal with constantly changing environments, new technology, et cetera. So someone once told me that if you really want to achieve remarkable things in the world, you should follow a simple formula, which is ask what if, find great partners, and then do all the good you can, right? So that really was the, the... convening philosophy around the original eight. And at the time, EPA was preparing uh, to offer uh, a best management practice option. And for a lot of companies, uh, that made sense because uh, EPA would basically, you know, here's the toolbox, apply these tools. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And I think at the time, there were like 10 or 11 across the value chain that you could, 10 or 11 methane abatement activities that you could deploy. And um, we've come a long way. I want to talk more about that later. But for the founding eight, we had been doing those things all along. So we were looking for 
a more performance-based platform. For example, at AGO Resources, uh, now Southern Company Gas, we had replaced you know, the vast majority of um, generational older pipe, you know, built uh, state-of-the-art at the time, but uh, with improvements in materials, we all know that uh, new pipe today doesn't leak at nearly the rate the old stuff did, right? Mm -hmm. So for a utility, the main emissions control activity you can could deploy, at least back then, was to replace the pipe, right? Uh, so we were looking, we were all looking for a better platform. And, and back to plan, do, check, act. I mean, the philosophy around that is you, you have a theory, right? You plan out your work, then you, you run a sample, and then you evaluate the results, and then you implement what you learned. So we built this performance-based platform to help capture opportunity. Our name, One Future, Our Nation's Energy Future, is sort of centered around uh, achieving a goal, right? And the, and the goal was we're going to get to a value chain leak loss rate of 1% by 2025. At the time, there were some projections that the, the leak loss rate was 1.4% or 1.6%. But there was also a paper, I believe by IEA, that suggested that a, a value chain rate of less than 1% meant that natural gas was better than every other fossil fuel and every other application uh, from a climate perspective, right? Mm -hmm. This this was before 1.5C, was before any of the other goal setting that's been done subsequently. But that's the target we chose. Other criteria that we were really heavily invested in were that we wanted each operator to have flexibility because no two operations are the same, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what we know today is if you look at the uh, emissions intensity of the various basins in the United States, the, uh, the intensity varies by basin, right? Mm -hmm. But if you dig deeper, we also know that it varies by operator and even between assets of a single operator because the operating conditions are different. I mean, is it, is it dry gas? Is it associated gas, et cetera? We also felt the need to... Um, First, back up a second. In those situations, a one-size-fits-all doesn't work, right? Yeah. So you need op operator flexibility. Secondly, it had to be cost-effective because all of our CFOs wanted a return, right? Show us how this is going to work and, and what's your business case. So we set out to identify across the value chain where are the uh, most cost-effective opportunities. And we uh, we hired ICF to to do a paper for us evaluating the marginal abatement cost at various segments. We use that then to, to reverse engineer targets for each of our segments. So production, gathering and boosting, processing, transmission, storage, and distribution. And how do we assign the, the methane burden between each of those five segments based on A, the availability of technologies, and B, the cost effectiveness in each of those segments? And that's what we did. Still today, I think it it remains a, a really solid contribution to to the effort. If you you know look at the Inflation Reduction Act and the methane fee, there are segment targets, mm -hmm. um, and if you as an operator you meet that segment target, you're not going to pay the methane fee. That's 
essentially the foundation uh, of One Future and our protocol. There are a lot of different voluntary programs or organizations out there. So OGMP 2.0 and there's GTI Veritas and there's MIQ, right? Some are frameworks, some are more organizational. So like for the casual listener, what, how does One Future differ from some of the other groups out there trying to achieve similar things? Well, we are, we are the only platform that has both developed uh, a segment target and a way to aggregate those emissions, you know, pancake them up, aggregate them through the value chain to yield a comprehensive emissions intensity. And, and in our case, it's designed to, to represent uh, what the, um, the emissions intensity of the entire industry would be if every operator applied uh, our methodologies, right? Okay. It, it was it, it was proof of you know proof of the the business case here, uh, proof of concept. In fact, we we partnered with uh, DOE's National National Energy Technologies Lab, and they used their life cycle analysis tool to evaluate our protocol before we implemented it, and they suggested we would greatly uh, exceed our target. In other words, we would do much better than one percent. And that, you know, that felt like a, a pat on the back. And, um, yeah, absolutely. The, the difference is, so, and, and all, by the way, um, all of those other platforms are solid, right? They're, they're, yeah. they're good. I'm not, criti- I'm not being a critic of any of them, but there are some shortcomings around it. So OGMP 2.0 is, is a wonderful program. It has a lot of signatories, participants, including some one future members, right? Yeah. But, but in my view, wh- where it has a shortfall is that each operator gets to choose a target. So I'm either, you know, operator A says, I'm going to reduce emissions by 15% by 2025. Operator B says, I'm going to hit an uh, emissions intensity target of so-and-so by 2025. There's no way to compare those two operators apples to apples, right? So what our, our um, protocol allows our members to benchmark themselves against their peers. And that is, you know, that's a really useful tool because one, it's objective. Two, when you're speaking to stakeholders, you can kind of show, hey, I'm, I'm in this exclusive club and I'm doing just as well, or if not better than all of my friends, right? We're, we're leaders of leaders. And for the CFO organization, you know, when you go back uh, at the end of the year to, you know, prepare budgets, you can show progress that, you know, the, the spend that we, you authorized helped us attain the, the goals we have as a business. Yeah, um, therefore, you know, it's, it's a good return. No. Awesome. So one feature <clears throat> specifically focuses on the voluntary. We've mentioned that here and it's been going for what now? nine, 10 years, um, you know, with, with what sounds like some pretty good effectiveness. I mean, do you have numbers on, you know, emissions reduced and, and do, I know they'll vary by company, but I mean, what's the, what's the scope of what's been done here? Well, we've beat our target every year. We'll issue our sixth annual report and it can be found at our website, which is onefuture.us. Perfect. And they can look at our previous five reports. We, um, you know, the, the, the numbers bounce around from year to year because we're not a static organization. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we add members. We have there's some consolidation in the industry, so we might you know a member may get um, absorbed into another one. So the number count goes up and down, um, and new members sometimes are not as far along on the journey as others. And sure. so when they when they first get started, you know their their emissions intensity may boost, you know may bump up the number a little bit for a segment here or there. But generally speaking, we're hovering around that 0.5% number. Yeah. So you're two um, xing your goal, right? <laughs> Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and we we also protocol is not static either. Uh, we have added sources over the years, so we you know increased the inventory, and we've adopted in some cases more what we consider to be more accurate emissions factors than are presently included in subpart W. We have not only GHGI, but we have GHGRP, and then we have one future sources as well. So it's, I think it is nearly as comprehensive as OGMP 2.0. OGMP 2.0 has a couple of additional sources, and we evaluate those every year and determine whether there's, you know, adequate data to identify how to measure that emission or um, predict that emission. Again, it's, you know, it's a continuous improvement process. And by we, you're, you're, you're talking about industry experts that you've partnered with. Those are that are members of the one future. I mean, who decides what kind of gets in and out of those regulations or I'm sorry, oh, sure. directives. Yeah. So we, um, we have 52 or three member companies now representing 40% of the value chain in the uh, lower 48 onshore. And we collectively decide Great. which yeah. sources we're going to add. Yeah. So it doesn't, With- um, I think the reason I asked the question is a lot of times, you know, when I'm at conferences and things like that, I get asked, how does this been, you know, a lot of people feel like the big conglomerates, the, the won't throw any of them under the bus, but the big guys kind of have this lobbying power and this monetary weight that they can kind of push around. And, you know, sometimes that, doesn't help the mom and pop folks, but you know, that was just really the, the root of my question. So. Yeah. Our membership is, uh, is really diverse. We, we, our members have operations in all the 48 continental United States. We have smaller operators. We have, you know, ranging from really small producers to EQT, which is the largest producer of gas in the United States, small, transmission and storage operators up to Williams and Kinder Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway. So it runs the gamut. We intentionally have developed a platform that all operators can plug and play. Great conversation there, guys. Uh, We need to take a moment to recognize our sponsors and we'll be back in just a moment. This podcast is brought to you by Let's Clear the Air a public education campaign of GPA Midstream Association and GPSA Midstream Suppliers. The midstream industry helps power the lives of 330 million Americans by working around the clock to provide reliable energy, counteract climate change, and strengthen our country's economy. Let's Clear the Air is about promoting a constructive dialogue on the future of energy. Learn more and join the conversation at letscleartheairnow.org. Now, back to Andrew and Adam. Jim, can you speak to the effectiveness of voluntary measures and voluntary frameworks relative to 
the regulatory mandates that seem to be getting pushed more and more at the state and federal level and, and you know, their effectiveness at achieving emission reduction targets? As a, an organization, we are agnostic on regulation. However, we believe that if there is going to be regulation, it should be science-based and performance-based. And in fact, the only comment that we gave EPA on its proposed supplemental rule was that we hoped that they would not freeze technology by specifying standards that currently exist. We've seen a hockey stick curve in uh, the development of new technologies. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned earlier, when we performed our marginal abatement cost curve study, there were 10 or 11 uh, technologies or abatement practices that were available across the value chain. We just did an inventory, completed an inventory this year, and our members are currently deploying 83 technologies and methane abatement activities across the value chain, 83 unique activities or technologies. Um, so when it, when it comes to the regulatory piece, being agnostic to regulation, but encouraging science-based rulemaking, like... Does One Future do any lobbying or, or what is the relationship then with the yeah. regulators in your organization? Yeah, so we're, we're a, a little bit unique as a trade association in that we spend zero dollars every year on lobbying. We Wait, just, hold on, you better not our, that for the audience because everyone thinks we spend a ton of money. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I just signed our tax return for the year and we have zero, zero percent of our budget, 0.000 percent of our budget goes to lobbying activities. So we are, we are not, you know, lobbying legislators or members of Congress or the administration on for or against policy. Mm -hmm. We, we do engage with regulators. And for example, Colorado just asked us to participate in a roundtable on the development of emissions intensities for midstream. And uh, they wanted to know, how did you develop your targets? What, what should we consider? Early on, the state of Pennsylvania asked us for advice on how to build regulations for the production sector. We believe there's a role for us to be the honest broker. Yeah. Um, and we, we devote the vast majority of our resources toward supporting R&D, new technology deployment. We've got a, a really good platform for testing that across different basins and different assets. And we meet every month to share uh, what we're finding in the field, right? You can call it a sandbox, you can call it a test lab, whatever. But for the most part, we... Um, we just try to advocate for innovation, recognize innovation, allow it, embrace it. And, and beyond that, if there's a particular regulatory proposal that we believe would hamper methane abatement, we'll, we'll say that. But what we always try to provide is here's a better way. I've, I've heard you mention abatement a few times, and I'm just curious, you know, it seems like there, a lot of the attention goes to measuring and quantifying emissions. Yes. How much time does one future spend thinking about the measurement and quantification of the emissions relative to, I've heard you say abatement a number of times. How, many, how much time is spent thinking about abatement technologies that you guys can help bring to market? We devote a good chunk of every monthly meeting to inviting technology providers to come present. Awesome. And 
and show us, right? What have you developed? How's it, how's it working? We, uh, you know, we don't act as any kind of good housekeeping seal of approval or technology clearinghouse. We don't see an official role for us in that, but we do, our members discuss what's working for them and what technologies have limitations. You'll find, I think that helps them decide among themselves or individually where they're going to spend their dollars. But it, there's no no official one future position on any particular technology. I, I will add, though, last year we started awarding, giving out awards to individuals and companies who either for R&D or for new technology, we're going to do that again this year. There, There's a lot of technology in the market. Some of it's not yet ready, but it's got a lot of promise. Mm. And some of it has has been um, demonstrated uh, successfully in the field and and shows good results. That's pretty great. I mean, you got to kind of reward some of the people that are helping you meet the mission, right? And, and uh, that's right. always appreciated on the vendor side as, as I am. But um, so we've talked about kind of the here and now and, and, and the beginnings of One Future. I mean, you're, again, you're 10 years into this thing. You know, what's your plan to sustain and build and, and continue the momentum 2025 was your original goal, right? So what does it look like, you know, after, after 2025, where does one future go from there? Yeah. we get that question a lot. In fact, I was speaking at climate week in New York and um, one of the folks in the audience said, Hey, 1% was a really big, hairy, audacious goal 10 years ago. Sure. Right. What are you going to do now? And, and um, the answer to that is we have just completed a, a pretty extensive strategic planning process to decide exactly that. What, is, what does this look like after 2025? And so the next step for us is a series of steps, but the next step for us is to, um, is to take that inventory of abatement activities that we just completed, the 83 that are now in the field, mm-hmm. um, and let's update our marginal abatement cost analysis and we'll do that next year. We'll, we'll, step one is identify the technology. Step two is what's really producing the biggest uh, return. And then we'll use that to inform uh, an analysis around where the opportunities are in each segment. I, I suspect we'll see that some segments can have you know, tighter standards, if you will, or more aggressive targets. Some segments, it's, you know, there's still some sticky issues out there that the technology doesn't exist for yet. We'll, we'll assess all that together with the experts, the academics who are testing all these new technologies as well. We'll evaluate and do to add MMRV, measurement, monitoring measurement, uh, reconciliation and validation. So for your listeners, a lot of these emissions factors that are used today to, to come up with an, an emissions intensity for an operator or a segment or the value chain, a lot of them are based on studies that were performed some time ago. Mm-hmm. And so it's not an actual measurement. We know, for example, that there are some emissions that cannot be measured yet. So if you have an upset, you know, it's hard to measure that, but you can calculate it. So there, there are some things that are best measured and some things that are best calculated. We have advocated for a very long time that subpart W should be um, expanded to allow for more measurement or enhanced measurement. I'm happy to see EPA seems to be moving in that direction too. And, and frankly, uh, you know, the technology is making that possible, right? Mm-hmm. 
you know, we may bolt on MMRV of some type, and I don't know whether that's very, probably, you know, we spent between our association and our members, we've invested more than a million dollars in GTI's Veritas initiative to develop an MMRV platform. And we'll probably adopt it or something like it so that we have more enhanced measurement. And as you measure more, there's a chance you may find more, right? And, uh, or, your, or your expected emissions may be higher than expected or lower than expected. In fact, we've got one member that has now completed its second comprehensive top-down, bottom-up inventory using every technology that's available in the marketplace. And their measurements show that they are actually performing well below what the subpart W emission factors would predict. Great to hear. We, we, yeah, right. And then there, there are also instances where members have deployed that technology and found emissions they weren't aware of. Sure. Right. So we're going to evaluate all that stuff. I think what, what you'll see from us very shortly is an announcement of a timeline around uh, our process for that. One of the things that could affect how quickly we can roll that out is uh, the supply chain. And can it scale up to meet our ambitions as quickly as we need it to? Um, and finding, finding people, getting them qualified as a vendor, I know that's a challenge uh, mm -hmm. for some vendors. But at the same time we're doing this, EPA and FEMSA are set to release new rules that are probably going to require the deployment of more technology. And that's, that's a lot for the supply chain to absorb in a very short period of time. In fact, we've, we've suggested publicly that the funding that was authorized as, the inflation as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, some of that ought to be around helping to expand and train the workforce that's going to be needed to implement all of these ambitions we have as a country. Absolutely. So, Jim, you, you, you kind of touched on MMRV already, which was going to be a follow-up I was going to ask. So I'm going to ask a different one before Adam wraps us up. You've been working with One Future for a long time in the member companies, and, and I think you've seen the probably forward willingness to be good stewards of the environment from the energy industry. So, you know, what is something that you like you've observed or, or, or what is something that people who don't work in oil and gas, mm -hmm. people that don't see this every day, what, what is the takeaway that you want them to carry from this message about what the industry is doing to try to be good stewards of the environment? It's sometimes frustrating that it's hard to get coverage, if you will, of the good stories. Right. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm grateful for this question. And, and I hope I, my answer will, will give it, do it justice, right? There is an engineering solution to every challenge. There, there is no emission in the value chain that we cannot prevent. And the challenge, though, is being willing to take the risk to go find them, right? Because in the short term, you know, oh, we found an emission. We had a release. Well, our members are not afraid to do that because that is a learning event for them. And it goes back to the culture, right? It's so we found it. How are we going to fix it? How are we going to prevent it? How do we change our procedures? How do we engineer a different solution? Like EQT goes out and, and removes or trades out, like I think it's 19,000 pneumatic devices on its production assets. No more 
pneumatic commissions, right? One of our members, Duke Energy, deployed satellite technology to find leaks on meters in downtown Charlotte. You know, every utility's got to do leak inspections under the DOT rules, under FEMSA rules. It depends on if it's a one, three, or five-year cycle. But traditionally, that's been resources walking the street with the device to detect. And that's a really accurate way of doing it, but it takes a lot of time, Mm -hmm. right? These satellites were able to pinpoint emissions in uh, a central business district and it, and the I don't want to quote the effectiveness rate because I'll I'll get it wrong for sure, but it was over eighty percent right, okay, and that was correlated with boots on the ground going back to check it. Well, the, the cool thing about that is, not only did they save time and money, but they found the leaks faster and fixed them faster, which meant fewer emissions, and it saved money for the ratepayer, right? So that's those are two really good examples of companies that have positive cultures around doing things the right way, and I, I think that's the runs through each of our member companies. Awesome answer. Yeah. Yeah. We've brought up the satellite technology a few times on this show. And, you know, I think it's a really unique opportunity to, to attract a younger generation of workers in the energy or the traditional energy business, mainly because you can go work at Duke or Williams or whoever, and literally work with satellites and in space and do different things, which is something I wouldn't have perceived when I was in college a while ago. So that's that's a pretty neat opportunity. Well, shameless plug, on our website, onefuture.us, we have a, a small one-pager on satellite technology and its effectiveness. And TLDR, uh, not every satellite's the same, right? Yeah. But th- it is another tool, a really valuable tool, and when used in concert with other technologies can can be a game changer. Anyone wants to see that, it's at onefuture.us. Again, and that, that's part of what we do to you know transfer technology. We have evaluated all of these technologies and we mm. feel like it's important to share them for, for the industry. So we kind of wrap up every show the same, just like we open it the same. You're back on our show, let's just say three years from now, and you're happy. What in the past three years has happened to make you feel that way? I think we have a unique opportunity as as a sector to lead the world on decarbonizing the energy sector globally. So if you look at what the United States has done over the last five or six years in particular, what our members have demonstrated, it's possible to produce very low emission natural gas at current market prices. Imagine taking that uh, clean U.S. natural gas as an export to developing countries that are energy thirsty, right? And instead of coal from China or somewhere else or gas from, let's just say, another country that doesn't put this kind of premium on doing things the right way, we've got a real opportunity to move the needle. And if, if if what I think is going to happen, if the EU and the Asian markets coalesce around a, a pretty common standard for how you measure uh, emissions intensity for imports into those economies, then we will have been part of the solution, a big part of the solution. Love to hear it. Love to hear it. Well, Jim, thank you very much for being on our show. And I hope uh, all of our listeners check out One Future online or, or wherever you uh, get your information. Andrew, anything to follow up with? No, that was a great way to close it out, honestly. Just thinking about the uh, 
the net impact, right, globally of American natural gas when it comes to reducing emissions, not just in our country, but across the world. So, so great insights and, and appreciate the time to talk to us, Jim. This was, this was awesome. Thank you very much, guys. I'll be back anytime. Thank you for listening to the Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast with Adam Murray and Dr. Andrew Parker. If you like what you have heard, subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app. You can email us with questions or comments to Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you.